Hello, I'm Al Head, Director of the Alabama State Council on the Arts, and I want to welcome you to Alabama Arts Radio Series. Each week we will be introducing you to some exceptional artists and other special people who make the arts happen in Alabama. Alabama is the home of a wide range of gifted and creative people who make important contributions to our unique cultural environment. Each week, members of the council staff will be visiting with some of these special people and introducing you to some of our state's most valuable human resources. So, for the next 30 minutes, sit back, relax, and enjoy Alabama Arts. Hello, this is Ann Kimsey with the Alabama State Council on the Arts. We are here today with Bergen Matthews and Dr. Frank Adams, better known as Doc Adams. Bergen is a writer and teacher at Spain Park High School in Hoover, and Doc Adams is a jazz musician and director of music at the Alabama Jazz Hall of Fame in Birmingham, and also a lifelong educator in Birmingham. The two have collaborated on a book, Doc, the Story of a Birmingham Jazz Man, on the life and career of Doc Adams. Bargain, how did the two of you first get to know each other, and how did you decide to write a book? Well, really, I first met Doc probably like a lot of people at the Alabama Jazz Hall of Fame, uh, where you mentioned that he's a director of music and education and uh, teaches lessons there, also gives tours of the Jazz Hall of Fame. And I walked in the it's the museum one day. It's located downtown Birmingham on 4th Avenue North, and I had not been there before. was really just blown away, and I guess in a lot of ways it's changed my life because it led to this relationship and friendship and collaboration with Doc. But uh, like a lot of people, I just went in and I took a tour of the museum. Uh, it's a two-story museum that has exhibits about the history of jazz in Birmingham. In fact, I was asked if I wanted to uh, just see myself around the place or if I wanted the tour. And I initially said, no, you know, I'm kind of in and out. I won't be long. So no tour for me. The receptionist behind the desk said, well, the the tour guide is, you know, 80 years old. He played with Duke Ellington. He's played with Sun Ra. He'll bring his instrument out and play for you. And he'll tell you some stories from jazz history. And so I said, "Okay, that sounds like a good deal. And Doc came out and I was the only uh, visitor at that time. But I've learned about Doc that if he has a crowd of a hundred or just one, it's the same. He fully invests himself in whoever his audience is and uh, gave me a a long tour with a lot of personal stories. I'm from Montgomery originally uh, and I'd lived in Birmingham for a few years and really didn't know anything about the depth of of Birmingham's jazz history and culture and community. Felt that it was a really important story that... um, that more people should know, and then that Doc himself was an incredible individual that more people should know. It turns out that lots of people know Doc, but uh, this was my first introduction, and it was probably a year later that I called Doc up and asked if I could interview him, thinking that we could do an interview, you know, just an article somewhere, and that very quickly snowballed after our first meeting uh, with a tape recorder. Doc told some stories for a couple of hours. Doc, as you'll learn, is a is an incredible storyteller as well as an incredible musician. And he began his story for me with his birth on Groundhog's Day of 1928 and spoke very chronologically. And at the end of two hours was about to graduate from high school. You know, I'd come loaded down with questions about what was it like playing with Duke Ellington and things like that. And we didn't begin to get into some of that. But what we did get into was 
was exhilarating itself. And Doc invited me to come back the next week for more. I did, and uh, he invited me back another week, so week after week. And after about six weeks, I said to Doc, I have no idea how to write an article <laughs> about you, but I would love to turn this into a book because there were so many stories, so many of which I didn't anticipate. Doc, I don't know if that's your recollection of how things happened, but that's kind of what, for me, the beginning of the process looked like. Uh, Doc, would you want to elaborate a little bit on, on how this came together? First of all, I want to say that I'm so happy and honored to be here in, in the Berg and sitting next to me is just an absolute genius. I say that because that's what the uh, Sunrod told me. He said that when I was maybe 14 years old, I played with Sunrod and everybody said he was out of this world in a lot of ways. He said that I was a genius. I just didn't know it yet. So I tried to do a lot of things. I know I'm not a genius. A word of encouragement, and I get those all the time now, and I'm so pleased to to be a friend and to bring in. And I'm, again, appreciative of, of Mrs. Kempsey, uh, who is with the state council. That's a big, a big honor to be around people like that. So... It's been a good, a good experience, a great experience in my life at my age to be the recipient of honors from the great University of Alabama. They made me the uh, the jazz legend, and I don't know what all that means, but it's a great honor to have a, to be a legend. Well, I wanted to start by asking you how you got interested in music and what that was like growing up and learning to play. Well, it's, it's two phases of that. First of all, I was curious about music because they had a band at a school where I taught for so many years, 27 years. And as a youngster, I could hear the band practicing, you know, and they were playing this. And my brother Oscar really got me started. He was the first uh, person elected to the Supreme Court in Alabama. And he played the clarinet. And one day I... I spied this clarinet on the bed, and I picked it up. I tried to make a note, and he said, hand me my clarinet back. You're going to break it. You're going to break it. You're going to break it. I started to hand it back to him, and he said, wait. Roll your lip back over your teeth and put your top teeth down on the mouthpiece, and you better blow easy. Do you hear me? You better not puff out your jaws. And the first one I said, pooh, it was a G. And that began my playing. When I got to the band room, I could play everything by ear. And my teacher was Mr. William Wise Handy, who was the nephew of W.C. Handy, the father of the blues. And I had a great teacher, a great teacher. So when I got to the band room, I said, put me in the band because uh, I can play. And he said, who taught you? I said, taught me? I don't know. And I played all the pieces they played because I could hear them practicing. And you say, well, I can't put you in the band until you can read music. I say, what is that? I didn't know about reading anything. I could hardly read the classroom work, but I did get hold of that, and, and I was doing okay. But he said, what I'll do, until you can read music, I'll let you march on the side of the band. And that was all right with me. I loved it, marching on the side of the band. And people would walk up, and I would be playing the same thing. <laughs> and they would say, look at him, look at him. So that was my very beginning. Of course, from then on, I, I was able to be 
extremely interested in marches like John Philip Sousa's Stars and Stripes and that thing. I could play those by ear. But the real change came later on when I got to the high school. Well, Bergen, when you were interviewing Doc Adams, um, what did you learn about the um, high school or the jazz scene in Birmingham? I learned a lot. Uh, as I said, walking into the Alabama Jazz Hall of Fame for the first time was eye-opening to me. And I, when Doc and I speak to a group anytime, I always begin by telling uh, any audience members that they should go to the Jazz Hall of Fame. It's really a, a, a great institution. And I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but in addition to the tours that Doc gives, he gives free jazz lessons uh, to students of all ages. So he's continuing his lifelong mission of educating students. One thing that I learned, and, and really one reason that I first wanted to write an article about Doc and then ultimately a book was that I thought, as I mentioned earlier, that Birmingham has a remarkable jazz story that ought to be told. Uh, the story, the role that Birmingham has played in the history of jazz and the role that j jazz has played in the history of Birmingham, I just don't think are, are well enough known. And then meanwhile, here's this uh, great storyteller who's lived through it all and, and has an incredible story of his own. One of the things that I learned was that what was once known as Industrial High School and is now Parker High School had a teacher named Fess Watley, who was the printing teacher at the school. And he was also a musician and he led a band. Uh, his first band here in Birmingham was the Jazz Demons. And then they began the, um, the gosh, Doc, what are the other names of his bands? The Saxo Society <laughs> Orchestra. Society Orchestra. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, at any rate, Fess was celebrated as a local band leader, and uh, he also instructed students sort of informally at the school. He wasn't the band instructor, but he really took them under his wing and created just generations, really, of, of top-notch musicians who knew how to read music, who knew how to dress professionally, who were very strict. Well, Fess really emphasized a rigid following of the rules, whether it's the printed score or just the rules of decorum. So Birmingham produced a lot of great musicians uh, who were really professional by the time they graduated from high school. And that included Erskine Hawkins and the whole Orchest Erskine Hawkins Orchestra. So many of those musicians came out of Birmingham. And and Doc was another who um, sort of fell under the tutelage of Fess Watley. And Doc, maybe you can you can tell better than I can uh, who Fess Watley was and what his influence was. Well, that's true. And what, what happened is in this whole discussion, it's big. And he was there in my office and he started asking some questions, you know, what is jazz and how did jazz come about? And I, and I told him the things I knew about it, but he just sit there and kept asking questions. And it led to one thing to another thing. And it's just like pulling a card out, you know, the more he, he would, would get answers to, he had more questions. So that's how we ended up putting it all in this book because he kept asking these questions. And, of course, we have built a great friendship between the two of us. And so he'd ask a question and I'd answer it. And, and getting into these things about the industrial high school, I always tell people when they visit the museum, that was a one-of-a-kind high school in Alabama. That was the industrial high school. Uh, we had a principal by the name of A.H. Parker that they picked when they decided that it would be an industrial high school. Other high schools taught everything, English lit, chemistry, all those type of things. But the industrial high schools strictly taught industrial things that you would be able to do, cooking and sewing, 
automobile mechanics and that kind of thing. So that was a difference there. People didn't like it at first, but it happened. And so they brought this Professor Parker, which the school is, is named after now. And to me, he was more militaristic because he insisted on us wearing uniforms to school. And, of course, that was corporal punishment. <laughs> if you missed a note or you missed something in your lesson, you'd get a lick. It is true now that, that that's not now, but at that time. And all the young ladies had to wear blue dresses until they got to the senior class, and they wore white dresses. The boys wore khaki pants, and you you were sent back, not home, but over to the cleaners if, the, if it was a dirty outfit that you had on. So if it was soiled, I should say. What happened is, by all this discipline, Professor Watley, and this is something I always try to explain, they called him Fess Watley. And at that time in the 30s, if you were good at something, they wouldn't say professor, they'd say Fess. And these names are, are, are very unusual, too, that we have as musicians. See, Duke Ellerton, his name is Edward Kennedy Ellerton. A duke is an English title, Duke, Earl Hines. His name is not that. Count Basie, that's another title, a count. His name is William Basie. So all those kind of things were occurring when I was growing up. But the main thing was the, the discipline. And if you attended Professor Watley's courses, you had to read music. You had to read notes. In fact, at that time, and this is something that's very important that people need to know. In the early stages of jazz, you had what we call Dixieland. You had a trumpet, you had a clarinet, a prophet, trombone going one way and that other way. It was contrapuntal. And that music would be put together that way. But when bands start getting to be large in size, like four saxophones, three trumpets, you had to read music because you had to play in harmony. In Dixieland or early music, you could go one way, somebody else go the other way, and you get a great effect. But when you had more than one person on a particular instrument, you had to have, like in the choir, you had your altos, sopranos, bass, and the like. So this is what happened in jazz. You had to be able to read music, and that's what Professor Watley became famous for. Turned out those musicians like Erskine Hawkins and Haywood Henry that could read music. And what the bands like Duke Ellington would do, they would send for these people. Even though they were high school students, they said, send me a trumpet player that can come in and play my music tonight, not next week. And so that's why the industrial high school got to be so important. They sent out finished products. We're going to take a short break. This is Ann Kimsey with the Alabama State Council on the Arts, and we have been speaking here today with Bergen Matthews and Dr. Frank Adams, better known as Doc Adams, a jazz musician and director of music at the Alabama Jazz Hall of Fame. (laughs) 
The Alabama Arts Radio Series is presented to you by the Alabama State Council in the Arts in cooperation with Troy Public Radio. The Council is the official arts agency in Alabama with the mandate to support the broadest range of artistic resources throughout the state. The Council emphasizes educational programs that reach students of all ages and works to provide all sectors of the population with access to quality arts experiences. For information about the Council's grant program and various forms of technical assistance, call area code 334-242-4076 or visit our website at arts.alabama.gov. Hello, we're back. This is Ann Kimsey with the Alabama State Council on the Arts, and we are speaking here with Bergen Matthews and Dr. Frank Adams, Doc Adams, jazz musician from Birmingham. Uh, he and Bergen have written a book called Doc, the Story of a Birmingham Jazz Man. I would ask, how did you get pulled into the more national jazz scene? Well, I had an experience that Bergen likes to we all were researching this is I got a chance to play with the the most weird person ever <laughs> to come up in Birmingham, and that was Sun Ra. And Sun Ra uh, was the one that in Birmingham they would arrest him because he wore these crazy outfits. He said that he was from Mars, from the planets, and he wrote music that way. So one day, out of a clear blue sky, uh, he called my mother, who was a third grade teacher in the city system, and my daddy was the grand chancellor of the Knights of Pythians, and he said that I'd like for Frank to play in my intergalactica orchestra. Nobody had heard anything like intergalactica. This is in the 30s and early 40s. My mom said, of course, and we were all shocked. I was all shocked and surprised, and my daddy came home and she whispered into his ear that Sun Ra wanted me to play in his orchestra. And my dad said, there's nothing wrong with it. I want the boy to play in his intergalactic orchestra. Now leave me alone. I'm going to take my nap. <laughs> See? And when daddy said that, that was it. And so I went to practice with them. And it was like a, what is he called, a, a seance or something, they were all sitting around without any instruments. And he said, we have the Frank Adams with us now. And it's a blessing for us to have him. He's going to help us. But I could hardly blow my nose rather than playing in jail. I was going to help him. And this is what changed my life. Really. He said, he's actually a little genius, but he just doesn't know it yet. And then finally, I would watch him. I would watch him. It's not like in a classroom where your teacher tells you to do this. But you just watching, and I didn't know what day it was, but there I was one day just playing this jazz music. I knew that I had arrived then, you know. And How I old was, were you? How I old? was about 14 in, in high school. I started, with, I was started in high school when he called me. In fact, I was playing with Professor Watley because all of his musicians were drafted in the Second World War. They went to the Tuskegee Air Force Band in Tuskegee. So that left me there and some others that had to take their places. Now you have a 
reputation uh, as a lifelong educator yourself. Can you talk about how you got into teaching and and where you taught? I would be happy to do that because I think that would be the most significant, one of the most significant parts of my life because I had no intention to be a teacher when I finished Howard University in 1949. I think I was one of the, what they call the 49ers. I absolutely worked my way through school playing with a group called the Howard Swing Masters. And then I had some road experiences, serving with acting in different bands. And I came home after being in Washington, D.C. for quite a while. And I was called to Lincoln Elementary School to teach in the place of my teacher, which was William Wise Handy, because he was going to the Ullman High School. And he had taught there for a long time. In fact, when I got to teaching, I had no idea that I would be permanently there for over 27 years. I was a sub. Although I was prepared, I had no interest in teaching uh, little children like that. And it was a sort of anxiety for me to not even supply, to go back on the road again. But uh, I sit there in my classroom, and the little children were making bad noises and things. So I had to get up and start working with them, teaching them, because I couldn't stand it any longer to be there from eight, 9 o'clock, 8 o'clock to 3 o'clock and go home. So I started to working with them, and I found out there was some great handicaps because the room I was in was an old barn, and it had a pot belly stove in there, and, and that was bad. But I lived about four or five blocks from the school, and I had attended that school. So I guess I got to the point that I wanted to, to do something. So I started working with the children. And I found out that even though they did pretty well, but they wasn't competitive with the the white schools or the other schools because we were in segregation or you know, deep segregation. It was changing then. I found out that if I could put more time on task, I could get these Students, that's not to be ordinary, but they would be brilliant. So we started practicing, as that used to be when Mr. Hannah was there. We started practicing at 7 o'clock in the morning before school started. And they started taking pride in that. And then the really thing that came up that clinched me was into thinking positively and knowing that we could do something was a group of young guys. They were big students for grade school, but they said, Doc, you don't have to come here early. We'll come and make a fire so you can start at 7 o'clock. Volunteering to do that, the youngsters, I saw that they wanted to do something. And then a lot of students were failing and everything. And I started sending letters home, little cards, that this child is really making some progress. And finally, the parents started coming. And they didn't have a, a booster group or anything, but they just started doing everything for me. And then we got to the point that we wanted to go to a band contest, competition. And if you've been around bands, you know everybody have the district festival. So we went to the district festival, and everybody looked at us. We went to one of the predominantly white high schools, and they said, wow, they okay. And the next year, I said we won a contest to go to the state. 
And my students were so disciplined. They turned the school out to watch them. We had gotten ourselves together. So that encouraged me in my whole teaching philosophy that you can do anything you want to do. They can do things if you encourage them and the parents become behind them. And the parents say, well, we got a man that's teaching them something, so they're going to get that early in the morning. So that's the, that was the history, and that was what I found out in teaching, that everybody can learn if you get their attention, and they find out that they can do it. So that, was, that has been my philosophy uh, over the years, is to try to take something that seems to be impossible and make something out of it. Well, I'm sorry we don't have enough time today to cover all the topics that you cover in y'all's book. Bergen, I just wanted to ask you to kind of wrap it up and mention some of the topics that maybe we haven't covered here today and, and also tell our listeners where they could get the books. Okay. Uh, certainly, obviously, there is a lot more in the books, much more than we could touch base on today. Uh, and the, as far as where the book can be found, it's published by the University of Alabama Press. So it's basically available anywhere. It can be found on Amazon or if a bookstore doesn't have it in stock, all of them can order it. Anybody can just ask for it, doc the story of a Birmingham jazz man and get it pretty easily. Other topics covered in the book uh, are pretty wide ranging from doc's early years as a young boy and as a teenager traveling with vaudeville shows and uh, touring musical groups. Some really fascinating stuff, I think, in that era of music that a lot of people have kind of forgotten and a lot of musicians and entertainers that have been forgotten. And on into Doc's uh, education at Howard University. One thing that I was struck by in working with Doc again and again is I knew that he played with Duke Ellington. I knew, as he's mentioned, that his brother was uh, Oscar Adams Jr., the first African-American Supreme Court Justice in Alabama. Their father was uh, politically significant in Alabama. Um, so I knew all this, but was constantly surprised by the historically significant characters that keep showing up in Doc's story. Uh, at Howard, he learned from Thurgood Marshall and from Elaine Locke of the Harlem Renaissance and John Hope Franklin, the historian. Doc's father was co-owner of the Birmingham Black Barons. And so as a very young boy, Doc saw Satchel Paige play here in Birmingham. So in and outside of the jazz world, later on, our book gets into stories from Birmingham Civil Rights Movement. Doc shakes hands with Martin Luther King and has firsthand accounts of what happened here between the 16th Street bombing and the Children's March of 1963. Doc was there for all of that, and we haven't touched on that at all today, but that's another part of the book, along with Doc's educational philosophy that I think adds uh, a lot of dimensions that bring it beyond just the story of jazz, which is significant enough, but, uh, but there's a lot in there beyond that, too. Well, I want to thank you both so much for having me here today, and it's been a fascinating story. And I want to thank you for coming and, and sharing your time with us. I want to also say that Bergen is a genius, really, in this type of thing, and uh, I'm appreciative that he's here today with me. I hope we can meet again. I'm certainly, Doc, endlessly thankful for you, and Anne, thank you very much for having us. This is Ann Kimsey with the Alabama State Council on the Arts, and we've been speaking today with Bergen Matthews and Dr. Frank Adams. We've been discussing their book, Doc, The Story of a Birmingham Jazz Man.
This program was brought to you by the Alabama State Council on the Arts and the Alabama Center for Traditional Culture. Technical production by Steve Grauberger. All radio programs can be heard online at alabamaartsradio.com.